Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip interviews financial due diligence provider Elliot Holland. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. I'm back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast, and I've had a couple of people on over the course of 2021 that are involved in the buying and selling of private properties, which is something that a lot of folks are just getting into. Uh, you have public stocks that you can buy, but you can also, you know, buy private stocks, and that's a whole different process, right? Because if you want to buy like a share of Apple, that's relatively easy. Than if you want to buy a share of, you know, whatever company that's not publicly traded. So um, today's guest is Elliot Holland. He basically specializes in, and I'll let him do it, but due diligence on a deal. So like all, you know, think of him like a, a, a research company that you would use for researching stocks. You know, you would you would uh, reach out to someone like Elliot to do some due diligence on your deal to make sure that. Uh, you're not missing anything important. So thanks for hanging out today, Elliot. Absolutely, it's good to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad we're making it happen. And, and you're and you're a uh, are you a don't give don't don't beat me up if I get it wrong. But you're like a, you're a Harvard guy, right? I am. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. know the secret handshake and everything. <laughs> did, 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 did the whole uh, met all the Illuminati and everybody that runs the world? Everybody. <laughs> so we're actually hanging out later on for dinner. So I'll, <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you know how it goes. All right. Cool. Cool. Let me know. Let me know. But uh, so so how how'd you how'd you get started in, you know, due diligence for private equity deals? Yeah, interesting story. So I'm a reformed engineer. I have two parents who are CPAs. Um, they told me to be more financial oriented than sort of accounting. I ended up taking my career more towards business consulting out of undergrad and then went to Harvard for business school and got into private equity sort of the, the mainstream business class. So um, people that are managing funds of hundreds of millions of dollars, um, leveraging and going out and getting businesses with uh, 20 to 30% cash down and the rest with debt and trying to grow those businesses. I, I worked for sort of a family that was doing the investing though. And so I always thought about private equity more as ownership oriented, not as like a job, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I spun out of that private equity firm after business school. I started my own independent sponsor firm with a mentor. And so we looked at deals two to eight million dollars in cash flow. We did deals in the tow truck industry and uh, automotive parts and then clinical trials for pharmaceuticals. And then I rolled out of there and did my own independent sponsor shop, looking at deals a bit smaller, so a million to four or $5 million in cash flow with a similar thesis. And that was around 2017. And a lot of things were happening, but I was seeing more and more sort of main street everyday business buyers coming into the market. There were a lot of trends of sort of families and family offices becoming a bigger piece of the private equity spectrum, private equity, the asset class, the top quartile, not margins, but returns were coming down. and. 
I also realized as an independent business buyer, even I found it almost impossible to find good quality advisors to help check the financials, to help think through the business model, to be able to go dig through private company financials, to not get lazy or bothered by sometimes the the speed or slow speed of data coming from some of these private businesses. And so I started Guardian Due Diligence in 2017 to sort of be the advisory company I wish I had when I was buying businesses. And we have a full suite of M&A services, which means we can take you from helping you find deals all the way to due diligence to helping to grow businesses post-close. And we focus on sort of people who are paying for diligence themselves. So non-funds, non-sort of uh, institutional capital with people who may be using an SBA loan and buying a $5 million business, or maybe they're in roofing for 20 years and want to go buy a roofing company, or maybe they're doing real estate now and they say, hey, I like the stability of that, but want something with a bit more return. And so we support sort of that ecosystem of business buyers. Okay. What are some of the um, due diligence, what am I trying to say? The word's not mistakes, but what are some of the things that you uncover, right, when going through the process that a lot of folks just overlook? So a lot of first-time buyers fall in love with the deal. So it's down the street from them. It's in the industry they wanted to be in. It's a buddy of theirs who's selling it or a loose acquaintance. And the first mistake they make is just falling in love with the deal. So the guy tells you it's, or the gal tells you it's a million dollars in cash flow and same customer for 20 years and flagship and high value, great margins, great reviews. And you want to buy a business that's going to double or triple in a couple of years. And so you want to believe all those things. You believe the person to be a reasonable, honorable person. And I can't tell you how many calls I get from people who are like, yeah, I want to use your services, Elliot, but you know, I really trust the guy (laughs) and the business is local. And, you know, I'm not really a finance person, but the numbers look clean. What does that mean? Um, (laughs) Right, right. And and so I I go and do foolish things by themselves. (laughs) Um, For uh, other people, I think, so the whole industry of M&A, mergers and acquisitions is about making somewhat ugly stuff look pretty, which is not a whole lot different than real estate or public market investing, right? Coca-Cola sells sugar water to a bunch of people, right? And then we have these 20, 30 page reports to talk about the quality of Coke stock and people buy Coke stock. And if you're doing real estate, it's some, you know, God unforeseen building in an up and coming port of the city. And, you know, you never want to go visit the thing, but it's in this nice PDF. And so, that's what you consume as an investor. And the same thing for businesses. It's this nasty industrial thing that's dirty and crazy, but it's got strong cash flow and great customers. And so you always get these glossy materials on the deal. And it's your job as a buyer or as an advisor to look through and say, okay, if they're saying revenue is this and costs are this and cash flow is this, how do I check those things? If they're saying they've had these customers for 20 years, how do you check these things? If you're saying that you have the leading product in the category, how do you check these things? So a lot of people consume the glossy stuff and don't spend the time to go check the primary data. I think the third mistake people make is small businesses are typically running QuickBooks or a software from Peachtree Software that's now Sage. 
And so what ended up happening is there may be brokers that are in the, in the middle representing the sellers and they'll put together spreadsheet analysis that takes information from say a QuickBooks or from a Sage software and put it into a more palatable spreadsheet to send it as the kind of memorandum for the deal. And I think a lot of people look at this Excel and don't realize that you really should be looking at primary data. So if you don't see like a QuickBooks header at the top or a Sage header at the top or some header that shows the software that originates the information, you're in trouble. And really, because I think people need to hear this too. Sometimes people want to trust that because the seller has an accountant with a great name that produces a report that says the business did a million dollars in cash flow, you want to say that John's great accounting firm wouldn't lie. So I feel comfortable just reading this by a CPA and that's what this business is doing, not realizing that that makes no sense at all. That CPA works for the seller and the first two pages of most accounting reports say we have no recourse. We just took in the data the seller gave us. We did not perform any significant audit procedures. And so these are reviewed financials or compiled financials, not audited. And people, again, they see the CPA logo on the front and want to believe it. So, so like what, 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 what happened? Like what's the difference between or what happened between when they take it out of QuickBooks and they put it into that fancy software? So it would be similar to, I'm trying to think of an analogy. So like your, like your, body, your, your body mass index, say you went to the doctor for your physical and you know, your body mass index is, is out of whack and they're saying you're obese, right? But your girlfriend asked you that night, hey, how'd, you, how'd, you, how'd your BMI index uh, come out when you went to the doctor, right? And, and you embellish things just a little bit. So yeah. instead of it being from the doctor with the doctor at the top, and, you know, the number of the doctor to verify it's in your social uh, portfolio. And now it's 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 manufacturing. You could change the number. And so when you can abstract the data away from the original system, it, it, it can be manipulated in any kind of way. Um, if you were to take your taxes and send it to somebody to get into some fancy uh, um, business group, and, oh, you have to have a million dollars of cash flow to get into the group. And you have QuickBooks, so you export it from QuickBooks, but you send it to your accountant and they do something in Excel. So now the reality is, Philip, it's hard to manipulate the QuickBooks, the save softwares, because every time you do something to manipulate the numbers, you have to undo it to be able to have a clear view on your business. Mm-hmm. Once it gets into Excel, when you let people like myself or other financially inclined people if you let us run free in Excel, you know, we can paint <laughs> masterpiece pictures in Excel. It right. needs to be coming from the main data source. You got it, you got it. Okay. So so uh so they basically put like Instagram filters on their on their financials. There you go. Getting the money, right? So so let's say they they do the due diligence and they they find a good deal, right? That makes sense. That's that you know, you can always get screwed, but that's reasonably reviewed now the money right and i know you help with that too right you help people get prepared to to get the money so how do folks know where to get the money to buy the business sometimes they don't just to be completely honest um but where do you get the money so it depends on the size of the deal so for most people that are buying companies under five million dollars 
the best place to get the money is your local bank. But it's not the typical business loan. The government has a SBA loan program called 7A. And if you want to go buy a business, I encourage you to Google that and check it out. But essentially, the government will guarantee 75 to 90 percent of loans. But those loans get originated in your local Bank of America, Chase, Wells Fargo branch. So you can deal with the same bankers you always dealt with. Just ask them about a 7A loan. And of course, the requirements are way higher and you need to put a uh, set of materials together for them to review. But that's one place to get the money. Now, the debt isn't going to take care of your whole capital stack. So say you're buying a $5 million business, you may need to put down 10%, $500,000. So you could go to the bank to get the 450 uh, or, or the rest of the money, but the 500,000, you may need to go to high net worth individuals. You may need to go to um, investor clubs. You may need to tap into your own networks. And then let's say you want to do a deal bigger than $5 million. Now you're talking about the SBA 7A program maxes out at 5 million. And so if you want to do something bigger than 5 million, now you're going to what's called a mezzanine debt firm, which is just a non-bank lender that lends on slightly riskier deals than the bank would do at a higher interest rate and different structure. So those are the main places people go to get money for deals like this. Got it. And are, are those, with all this money in the, in the world, are those rates going down too, mezzanine debt rates or, or interest Oh, rates? yeah, they're all coming down, but they can still be expensive. Really? But everything's coming down, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we, I think we well, talked- Well, let me just tell you what expensive looks like just because I think it's important for folks to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes people will say, okay, well, it's 10% or 12% interest, right? Oh my gosh, I'm not paying that. I can get a loan from my bank for 5% for, you know, a car. Yeah, but the car is not five million bucks. So if you want to start doing deals that are five million plus, you're going to have to deal with maybe an interest rate that might be double than what you could get on a car loan. But that's because those people are taking on a lot, a lot more risk. Right, right. No, makes sense. And 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 it, you know, for 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 context for folks that may not understand, right? I'm I'm assuming that the people that take out a a loan for, you know, ten percent. They're they're assuming that hey, well, my money in the business is going to grow at a hopefully higher than ten percent a year rate, and so as long as it does that, it's you know it's it's not as expensive as looking at the rate by itself. Is that a safe assumption? Exactly. You have to assume that you're going to grow your capital in excess of the interest rate enough to create a return worthy of taking the chance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so and so we talked um, off air about like the cost of money for African-Americans being relatively high, which, you know, newsflash, not a shocker, but why is that? So I, when I first started professionally, I was upset and it didn't make sense. And I would pump my fist and say, same loan, same archetype of person. Why is the cost of capital different? As I've matured, we all recognize some things are just true. So why is the cost of capital higher for black people? A, because we don't control the allocation of as much capital. So part of capital allocation in terms of loans and equity is just the merits of the deal. But there's always a personal level. So people tend to want to invest in and and tend to think lower risk of people who look like them from their neighborhood, go to similar places, similar music, similar food, the whole thing. And so when you're going to a person who doesn't look like you, that's not from your neighborhood, doesn't look at deals the same way. 
they're not going to perceive the risk the same way a person who did have those commonalities with you would. And so therefore, um, black people end up paying higher rates. The other thing is, I think some black people are worried, concerned, not willing to go outside of the black community for capital for whatever reason. You know, they might have experienced higher rates of capital in the last thing that they did, and they don't want to go back to that source. So now they're only dealing with black investors. Well, the pool of black investors is smaller. They don't have the same amount of wealth that white people have. And so if you have $10, you're going to invest that differently than you have. You have Mm 10,000. So if I need to hold $5 and you only have 10, that's tough. Mm -hmm. If I want to hold $5 and somebody has 10 million, that's nothing. And so when you, when you limit yourself to the black community, which may have some benefits too, now you're dealing with people that just on average have a smaller amount of capital. So it becomes harder. The other thing, and this is just markets and this is just capitalism. If I'm an investor and I know that you don't have access to capital at a cheaper price, because if you did, you'd probably go there. Mm-hmm. If you're talking to me, you probably can't get the cheaper price capital. I'm going to charge you a premium as a capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just like if you can't get a loan from your bank and you show up at the check cashing place, they're happy to see you, but you're going to pay the rate that's there because they know if you could get a loan from your friends or from um, the bank, you wouldn't be there to to get money. And so for some logical reasons and for some just it's not us on the other side making the investment reasons, mm-hmm. black people play a higher rate. Yep. No, that, that makes complete sense. I'm, I'm going to be on a panel here, uh, I believe I am. I haven't uh, told me, put it on my calendar, uh, but he hadn't followed up with me on it yet. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's still doing it. But we're, we're talking about that because we're, we're specifically speaking to, you know, it's a conference for black women. And so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the importance of building a business that generates money uh, so that, you know, once you're, um, you know, once you have a successful business that's like making money, Right then, and people are knocking at your door, whatever color they are. Right then, you can drive down the cost of capital because they 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 want in. So you just reverse the 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 equation, right? It's like right. a it's like a company here in Dallas called Canary, uh, Mandy Price and Star. I forget Star's last name, but they're uh, black women uh, startup founders and. You know, they're getting money from a lot of folks now or, you know, heck, how many folks want to give Jay-Z some money? Like he turned in magic exactly. tricks. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> you know, his cost. And we all know that the easiest time to get a loan is when you don't need money. Yep. And so when you have money, you can go into the bank and say, I don't want to use my money. I want to use your money. And they'll say, happy to, because you're, you have millions of dollars in our bank that we can go grab if you don't pay us back and we'll get an interest rate on the money for sure. So yeah, the best way to lower your cost of capital is to make some money. <laughs> yes, sir. I mean, next question we talked about is how to fix that. But I think we kind of talked about that, right? I mean, we just talked about, um, a, a, understanding the game, which you just laid it out, and then B, building a successful business. So, but a- anything else you think that'll help, you know, and, and let me let me preface it, right? So, I, you know, I tend to, like, there's this guy, you, I'm, I know you heard of him, A.G. Gaston. He owned the hotels that Kingdom stayed in when they went to uh, Alabama. Oh, Black Titan is the biography. It's a it's uh-huh. a really it's a really dope book. But the point was, uh, you had King in the civil rights movement, 
that they were they were doing what they were doing to bring national awareness to how things were in the South, which was 100% needed. And then you had this older black man who, you know, King was like in the 30s. This, this guy was like in the 60s. So A.G. Gaston had been in the South, right, the whole time. But he, he like owned hotels, owned uh, all kinds of businesses, just rich, sitting at the table, you know, with, with white people um, doing business because he had, you know, Move beyond just being a black man. Don't get me wrong. There's always a there's always a lid, sure. right? But right. but he but he 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 forced a seat at the table. And here's where I'm going with it. You know, his philosophy was, hey man, hey guys, I I, I like you know it's cool what you're doing, but let's not let's not go too far because what these you know what these um <laughs> what they call them in Panthers what the colonizers understand and that and I'm calling them colonizers because they literally were oppressing black people. But what no, they, you know, what I'm saying, what they, what they, what they understand is like making money, right? So if we can show them how integration helps them make more money, they're gonna do it, right? And then on the other end, Ralph, you know, Ralph um, Abernathy famously <laughs> called him a Uncle Tom. He's like, man, you're just the Uncle Tom, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, which is like an insult, right? Uh, but but I think right. but I think I think you needed both of them, right? Because I, I think you had to have kingdom that show the light on what's going on but then you also gotta you also gotta there's not gonna be real change until they understand economically why it's better you know what i'm saying and so that fast that fast forward to today i'm like i think the way to fix it is okay we're shining the light but that's not gonna fix it i don't think right i think i agree i think i think you need both things because not everybody can play all roles right so not everybody's going to be able to be like gaston it's just not real and yeah. i think oftentimes we forget some of our uh more capitalized friends they didn't create their money in their lifetime that money was transferred down so mm-hmm. you're not really competing head to head with the person on your block who's got the bigger house because their parents put the down payment on that and you didn't have that option <laughs> Facts. so sometimes the fight you have to fight is the the bare knuckle one right and so you, you bring awareness you talk about the injustices and that's the that's the play you make. Other people have the ability to be um, creators and allocators of capital and are comfortable moving in different circles and thinking strategically. And I think they're both important. I mean, I, I, I encourage black people to stop looking at the other black person that's not doing it your way as an Uncle Tom and just say that's a different role. You know, like this last year when all the protests were going on, my role wasn't out in the streets, burning things down, throwing bricks. You know, I was advocating for capital plays behind the scenes. Now, both roles require time and energy, but um, they had different utilities, right? And not everybody could do everything. I mean, in terms of the question about like the capital and how does that get fixed? I think you have to keep pushing. I think you're right around showing other people that they can make money. But I think the way that you do that is you make money yourself. If you were making a whole bunch of money yourself without using capital outside of your community, you're gonna elicit people to come by and try to figure out how are you doing that and then try to put their money in with yours because clearly you're growing. And now that app may increase somebody's propensity to lend at fair terms to the next person they see that looks like you because you've created your own thing. And so I think as we amass more wealth and have more examples of business people who are at that top echelon, the top stratosphere, mm-hmm. people are going to 
consider the downside implications of not investing fairly in black businesses. Facts, facts. Yeah, no, I get, I, I like it, I, and that's how I feel. I feel like, I feel like Jay Z and Beyonce are going to create more black millionaires than anything else because Beyonce, Beyonce say, "Oh, you want to do a shoe deal with me, and you ain't got no black executives in here? Uh, we're leaving." You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're out. <laughs> yeah, you know stuff like that, and you lose the, that money, and all of a sudden. Now those companies are thinking about the decisions that they made or their lack of attention to certain things that they had. They were on the precipice yeah. now, of something wait. amazing and the person would not do it because of their inability to be fair in their practices. Yeah, yeah. they get they get they get more real quick when it affects their pocket. But they're like, oh, no, we're all about it. Uh, OK, because, you know, you can't ignore it no more. I, I think that's what I'm saying. I'm saying today all these companies getting on board, yeah. I think, is a direct. I don't think it's morality. I think they just realize that, like, no, we're only come up regardless. Like, the, of, of, like in, in my business and your business, like, I think people underestimate the amount of black people out here who have, like, money, money. Not not income. I'm talking about with some heavy hitters out here that got some behind-the-scene yeah. powers and influence. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, okay, if we, we need to find a new way to make some more money. And so we need to, you know, if we need to grow, there's a whole population you know, 11% of the population has been completely ignored for 300 years. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, that's a whole other right. country. <laughs> yeah, and the likelihood that there's good ideas in that mix that have been overlooked because they haven't been uh, considered equal is high. Yeah. So here in Atlanta, I work as CFO of a venture capital firm as well called Collab Capital. And our whole thesis is investing in black founders under the guise that there must be some outsized return within black founded companies because they've been overlooked for hundreds of years. If they had equal access to capital, it's highly likely they would have overperformed what they did because they had limited capital. So we'll make the bets and get the return. And so I think there's a huge, there's a huge ability to, to move capital in strategic ways to get outcomes that will move that needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no facts, facts. All right. La- la- last question is probably one of the most important questions. Yes, uh, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it's less relevant than it would have been last week because I could have included NCAA. But who's your who's your, who's your favorite NBA team? We, we're going to the well, we're going into the re, to the real NBA play, you know time frame when people actually watch like playoff times coming. Well, see, that's not how I'm going to answer the question. <laughs> so for me, my favorite basketball team. I grew up in Michigan. I was born in Detroit, so I'm a Detroit Pistons fan. Had it been NCAA time, I, I grew up most of my uh, formative years were in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I'm a Michigan Wolverine fan. And that's the only way I can answer that question. For okay. Me. No, I got it. I got it. I like it. I respect that. Hey, listen, man, Detroit, that Detroit team I used to listen. And I'm not a, um, I'm a, I'm a LeBron, I'm a LeBron candidate. You know, when you talk about MVP, like I pick uh-huh. LeBron. So Detroit has a place in my heart because I used to bust Jordan up. People, people be like, oh, Jordan is the GOAT. I was like, but Detroit like handled him till he had a team. Like they owned him until he got the rest of his team. Oh. He would have never yeah. had them rings if he had to keep going up against that Detroit team and he didn't get that help. No, the bad boys era watching that, uh, it's a unique time in basketball, especially like watching like Bill Lambeer's <laughs> wonky looking behind. Man, he put was, in work as he the was. enforcer on the court. <laughs> and he didn't, he played that role well too. Man, he did. Those guys were just, I mean, but that's so Detroit, you know, automotive, blue collar, you know, you come through that lane. All right. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel some pain. Absolutely. Facts. 
Well, uh, well, I appreciate you hanging out. Let if if anybody wants to reach out to you or your firm to uh, sure. get some your due diligence services or learn more, what's the, what's the best way to reach out? So my website is guardiandiligence.com. Um, guardian like it sounds, D-U-E, diligence. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Elliot Holland. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T, um, Holland like the country. And I'm responsive in both places. Um, get a hold of me. My information's on the website. I would love to support you in buying your million-dollar business and making sure you're not buying a lemon where you lose money, but, but buying something that actually increase your wealth. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Thanks for sharing, brother. Yes. Thank you for having me. One of the biggest planning challenges I see for individuals that work at publicly traded companies are planning around their stock base or equity based compensation. They get stock options, restricted stock, employee stock purchase plans that can majorly affect uh, their tax situation and their balance sheet over time and the decision making process around what you do with your stock-based compensation can significantly impact your net worth in a positive or, or even a negative way, way over the long term. And so what I offer to potential new clients is to review your stock-based compensation plan and give my opinion on what you should do, what you should think about, how to put together a strategy around that. It's something that I do on an ongoing basis with existing clients, but I'll offer a no-cost no obligation, one-time consultation on your stock-based compensation plan for anybody who's interested to sign up for a time. Go to my website, StonehillWealthManagement.com and book a free investment, no cost, no obligation review. StonehillWealthManagement.com. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.